Good day again, everyone. It's great to see you all. How about I pray as we begin? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you over the summer that we've been able to look at John's gospel and uh, see each of these signs of Jesus. Uh, but more than that, we thank you for what they have shown us about Jesus, that he is the Messiah, that he is your son, and that by believing we have life in his name. And so as we look at this last and greatest of the signs of Jesus, uh, we pray again we might learn more of what it is to know the Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, I've always enjoyed trivia games. As a kid, we used to play Trivial Pursuit as a family. Uh, and in fact, there used to be a box of Trivial Pursuit cards that sat in the bathroom at home, and uh, I would just read through them. And needless to say, I became very good at Trivial Pursuit. Uh, and in fact, a few of us from church have gone to a couple of trivia nights in recent times. And in fact, one of my proudest moments was when a group of us entered the Star Wars trivia night and had a resounding victory. Let's just say the force was strong that night. It was one of my proudest moments. Uh, but to do well at general trivia, you've got to have a team that uh, cover all the bases. So geography, you've got to have someone who knows capital cities. So you've got to have someone who knows the capital of Burkina Faso. Who knows the capital of Burkina Faso? The French people do. There you go. It's Ouagadougou. There you go. I have equipped you to win trivia next time. Hey, you've got to have someone who knows modern music. Uh, so I tend to be better on the 70s, 80s and 90s. I need people to, to supplement me or compliment me with the more recent stuff. Uh, every so often, though, they throw in a bit of Bible trivia, uh, which is always a bit stressful for me because as soon as there's a Bible trivia question, everyone goes, and if you are the minister and you get the Bible trivia question wrong, your credibility goes way, way down. Uh, our passage today is actually a favourite in trivia quizzes. Uh, and the question where this passage comes up is, what is the shortest verse in the Bible? Uh, now, if you want to get full marks, you need to give both the reference and the words. Savitri read them for us before. Someone's there? Yes? John 11.35. And the words? Jesus, where there you go, you're going to win trivia. Well done. Well done. Uh, so as I say, you are now equipped. Don't, don't say I don't help you with the big things of life. You can now win a <laughs> trivia question. But actually, that verse is much more than trivia, isn't it? Uh, that verse actually captures one half, I think, of why this chapter is so wonderful. You see, we, we've been looking at these miracles of Jesus, what, what John calls the signs that show us who Jesus is and, and why he came. And all of the signs have actually been building up to this big one. This is the final sign. After this, Jesus' ministry ends... His preaching and his miracle working and so forth. And he sets his face towards Jerusalem and goes to his death. So this is the last, but it's also the greatest of the signs. And what it does is, in this one story, it actually shows us the two realities of Jesus. First of all, like all the other signs, it shows us the glory of Jesus. The very act of the miracle shows us that Jesus has the power even over death and that he truly is the Son of God. But on the other hand, in this sign, you get this real insight into the humanity of Jesus. You get this real insight into the man who weeps by his dead friend's tomb. Uh, it shows us how Jesus truly understands and knows what it is to be a human being. Uh, and that's what makes this story so powerful, I think. 
Uh, so I think we've saved the best till last in our, in our summer series. So open up your Bibles. You really want to follow along with the story to get the full impact uh, of what Jesus is doing in chapter 11. And I'm going to walk us through the story. And as we go, draw out some of the key implications. Uh, and I've broken it up into four acts or four scenes like a play. So come with me to Act 1. Jesus disappoints is what I've called it, verses 1 to 16. So in verse 1, we meet these friends of Jesus. It says, Now a man was sick, Lazarus, from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Now, now these people are not just randoms. Uh, these are close friends of Jesus. So there are other stories in all the four of the Gospels about this family. And so I, I want you to put yourself in, in Mary and Martha's shoes. If your brother is really sick... And you know the guy who's been travelling around the countryside making blind people see and lame people walk. What do you do? You send a message, don't you? you? You let your friend know. If your friend Jesus can cure blind people he's never met, well then surely he'll come and help his good friend Lazarus. But when Jesus gets the message, he does something surprising. He doesn't rush there straight away. You know, if you heard your close friend was in hospital, you, you drop everything and you get in the car and you, you get there. That's not what Jesus does. In verse 6, it says he stays where he is for two more whole days. And only then does he say, okay, let's go. Uh, so his disciples, understandably, get all confused. You need to understand, it's actually really, really dangerous for Jesus to go to Bethany. Uh, where Lazarus lives. It was right near Jerusalem where they want to kill Jesus. They've already set their minds on that, on killing Jesus. And so in verses 6 to 16, you have this whole funny interchange where, where Jesus tells them, Lazarus has fallen asleep. And they say, well, why are we going to a place where people want to kill you if he's just asleep? But of course, Jesus is making the point, Lazarus is not just asleep, he, he's actually dead. And so again, they think, well, why go to a place where people want to kill you if he's already dead? And, and so this whole first section really just raises the question, why did Jesus wait? Why didn't Jesus rush to his friend's bedside and heal him? In fact, if you think about it from other stories you read in the Gospels, Jesus could have healed him from where he was. He healed other people when he wasn't even present. He, he could have actually just said with a word, Lazarus get better and Lazarus would have got better and no one would have been any the wiser. It's interesting, when Jesus finally gets there, this is the question that Martha, the sister, raises. So go down to verse 21. Look down at verse 21. It says, Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. It's interesting. As Sergio read it, he, he read it really well. He read it with a, with a tone of accusation in his voice, you know, because it is, it's a thinly veiled rebuke, isn't it? She's, she's clearly disappointed in Jesus. Why didn't you come quicker? You could have healed him. So why did Jesus delay? Well, Jesus gives us the answer back in verse 4. Look back there. It says, when Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. See, Jesus had this under control and there were bigger things at play. What Jesus is actually saying there is this isn't just about Lazarus. This is about people seeing the glory of God. Jesus had healed many people, but raising someone from the dead, that was going to be his greatest sign. Jesus was waiting so that people would see this great sign and then come to know who Jesus is and believe in him. If you jump down to verse 15, look at what Jesus says. He says, I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe. 
It's just a little reminder that often, like Martha, we don't have the full picture. You see, but God the Father has the full picture. Our Lord Jesus has the full picture. Things happen and we sometimes throw our hands in the air and say, God, why have you let let this occur? Why are you letting this happen? We need to remember what we learned actually in Romans chapter 8 at the end of last year. God is working for our eternal good, but even more importantly, he is working for his glory. Well, let's get back to the story. Come to Acts 2, uh, Act 2, not Acts 2. Act 2, Jesus comes to offer life. This is verses 17 to 27. Go to verse 17. It says, When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now, that's really important because the point is Lazarus was dead. No one could doubt what was going on here. No, no one could say, actually, it's all a mistake. We just thought Lazarus was dead. You know how you hear those stories once in a while from places in the world where, where they get to the burial and then the person says, hey, I'm, I'm awake. Or, or in, I remember in a town in Italy, they had a tradition where they put a bell rope in the person's hand as they left them in the, the mortuary just in case they woke up and could ring the bell and let people know, no, it's a mistake. I'm alive. Lazarus was dead. In fact, when Jesus gets them to open the tomb, Martha complains. She says, you can't. He's decaying by now. Uh, The old King James Version says, she said, by this time he stinketh, which I think captures it better than our modern translations. You know, they knew how to say it better. So the point is, Lazarus is dead. And so Martha comes to meet Jesus. Like I said before, she, she, she welcomes him, in, if you like, with a, with a slight rebuke. She half rebukes him. Why, why didn't you come quicker? But she also still hopes Jesus can do something. Uh, I don't think she actually knows what she wants Jesus to do. Uh, she's not anticipating Jesus raising him from the dead. That's clear. But she just sort of hopes he can do something. Look at verse 22. She says, Yet even now... I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And so Jesus offers her hope. Look at verse 23. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Now Jesus is meaning, I am going to bring him out of that tomb. Jesus is meaning, I am going to bring that dead man to life. Jesus is making a massive claim. He's making an incredible promise here. You're going to eat dinner with your brother tonight but Martha understandably misses that because actually many other faithful Jews would have said exactly the same thing as Jesus said to her they would have said your brother will rise again Martha she thinks Jesus is talking about the end of time she thinks Jesus is talking about the judgment day look at verse 24 Martha said I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day See, Martha was a faithful Jew. She knew on the judgment day, everyone will be raised to life, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting judgment. The book of Daniel promised that. It's like she's saying, I know that, Jesus. My other friends have told me that, and in time that might help me to process this. But right now, my brother is dead and I'm devastated. But Jesus wants her to know he is not talking about some distant day in the future. Jesus wants her to know resurrection life is much closer than than some distant hope. In fact, it's actually standing right in front of her. And so Jesus says, I think maybe the most amazing thing Jesus ever says. 
It's actually the thing that is my great joy. I took a funeral on Tuesday for a wonderful old saint. And it's my great joy that in the Anglican funeral service, I read this verse before I say just about anything else. Because it captures the absolute essence of everything Jesus offers us. Look at verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die, ever. Do you believe this? So Jesus is saying to her, I'm not offering you some vague hope that, that someday, somehow, God might raise people from the dead. I am saying, I am the one who has come to do it. I am here to defeat death. I am here to offer you hope even beyond the grave. I'm here to offer you eternal life. And so he asked Martha, do you believe this? And she does. Look at verse 27. Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. Now, I don't actually think Martha has fully grasped what Jesus was saying. Uh, But she knows that even if she hasn't got all things sorted, Jesus is the answer. Even if she hasn't even worked out all the questions, Jesus is the answer to every question. She believes he is God's son. He is the saviour. And if anyone is worth trusting and believing and following, it's him. Now we're going to come back to verse 25 and what it means at the end of the sermon because it's so important. But I want to move on in the story now. Come with me to Act 3. And I've called it Jesus gets ready for a fight. And this is verses 27 to 36. Now Mary and Martha are both there with Jesus now by this stage, along with all the other mourners. In their culture, people actually came from all over the place to to mourn with you. Uh, and a lot of them were, were professional mourners. It was what they were paid to do, to come and wail and mourn and, and help you show remorse. And so Mary is a part of that and she, she throws herself at Jesus' feet in tears and she makes the same sort of comment as a sister, Lord, if you'd been here, you could have done something. So here's Jesus. Mary is in tears. There's people all around wailing and mourning. Look at his response. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her crying... And the Jews who had come with her crying, he was angry in his spirit and deeply moved. Where have you put him? He asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. Now I want you to see the two parts of Jesus' response here, because I think it's quite surprising as you hear it read. On the one hand, he weeps. Uh, Jesus is deeply moved when he gets to the tomb And he sees that that is where his dear friend is buried. He weeps when he sees the pain that that death has caused for Mary and Martha. And this is so important to grasp. This is so important to remember. Jesus is not some distant deity. Uh, Jesus understands our pain. Jesus understands the pain of death. Jesus understands friendship. He understands loss. As it says in Hebrews, he is able to sympathize with us in our weakness. Because Jesus experienced the pain and the struggle and the trials of being human in a fallen, broken world. Don't ever think Jesus doesn't get you. Don't ever think Jesus doesn't understand your pain or your struggles. There may be times where none of your Christian brothers and sisters understand your situation. Jesus does. Don't ever forget that. might be the shortest verse in the Bible, but it is wonderful. Jesus wept. But there's also this other part to Jesus' reaction where it says there, Jesus is angry. The words there, deeply moved, don't really capture it. Uh, The word is more like he bristled, he snorted, 
He fired up. Uh, the word actually gets used of, you know, when a horse makes that noise when it's upset and angry? It, it's saying that's what Jesus was like at this moment. And so what was he angry at? Some people think he was angry at the mourners for sort of putting on their, their fake show. Uh, some people think he's angry at Mary and Martha because they should have known he could raise Lazarus from the dead. I think it's more fundamental than that. I think it's more in his guts. He, he is angry at death. He's angry at the pain that death is causing his dearly loved friends. Because death is not natural. God made us to live forever with him. That is natural. But when we sinned, something unnatural happened. Death entered the world. Death is not the natural end of life, as our world likes to say, to make people feel more comfortable. Death is to be feared. Death is to be railed against. Don't buy the lie of our world that it's ever better for someone to die. It is always better to live. Because when we die, we face the judgment of God. Hebrews 9, 27. It's a point, it should come up on the screen. I think it's there. It is appointed for people to die once and after this judgment. See, death is awful. Unless we trust in Jesus, who has beaten death, which we'll come to in a moment, death is to be feared. See, you can ignore death most of the time, like our modern world does, and pretend it's not there. But not when you stand at the tomb. Not when you stand at the graveside of a dearly loved friend. And that is why Jesus is angry here. Because death is the great enemy that he has come to defeat. And here it is, staring him in the face. If you ever had a bully at school, if you, if you ever had a, a, a person who had it in for you and your friends, a nemesis, if you like, you, you know how you felt when they walked up to you? How your heart raced, how, how, how you started to sweat, how your chest tightened and your, 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 your fists clenched. That's what hap is happening here. Jesus is walking in to face his enemy. Everything he hates, death and all the pain and destruction it leaves in its wake. Jesus is angry. And so that brings us to Act 4. I've called it Jesus smashes his enemy. Look at verses 38. Come with me there. Verse 38. It says, Then Jesus, angry in himself again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. It's a great moment, isn't it? I, I visualise Jesus as Clint Eastwood here. I can't help it because I've watched so many westerns. It's my favourite type of movie. And I just imagine Jesus walking in like Clint Eastwood walking in the town at the end of the movie to deal with the bandits. Well, here, Jesus is walking up to the, to the tomb to deal with death. And most of the people there are thinking, is he crazy? He's gone too far this time. This is where, where Martha cries out, he stinketh. But they remove the stone. But then Jesus pauses and he does something really interesting. Look at verse 41. Then Jesus raised his eyes... And said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me. But because of the crowd standing here, I said this. So they may believe you sent me. See, Jesus didn't have to pray at this point. He could have just raised Lazarus with a word. And in fact, he does that sort of thing in lots of other moments. But he does this here so that everyone knows this is God's work. So that everyone there knows God is behind this. Jesus, everyone knows God has sent Jesus. Jesus didn't want them to believe he was just some miracle worker, some magician. 
He didn't want them to even just believe in him. He wanted them and he wants us to believe that he is the son of God, the one sent by the father to give us life. So finally, Jesus shouts with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus walks out of the tomb. It's an incredible moment. And if you look at verse 45, which we didn't read before, so look, look down at verse 45. It says, many people believed. Of course they did. But other people go and dob Jesus in and start plotting to kill him. That's just a reminder. Some people do not want to believe in Jesus. Some people can have all the evidence in the world, but they still will not believe. They'll often pretend it's about evidence and about questions. But even if a man is raised from the dead in front of them, some people will not believe. Because to believe would mean I have to worship Jesus. To believe would mean I need to change my life and live for him. But many did believe, praise God. And of course, that's why Jesus did this sign. Remember John chapter 20, verse 31. I think it's come up on the screen. It says, but these signs are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. The incredible thing is, though, as great a sign as this is, raising a man from the dead, as great as it is, you can't go and find Lazarus if you go to Bethany today. In fact, I've been to Bethany. You can't find much at all at Bethany today. It's chaotic. Uh, in another 20 or, or, or 30 years, we don't know, Lazarus dies again. And this time they buried him and he didn't come out. I wonder, though, if they put a few people around the grave after they buried him the second time, just in case. But, you see, in the end, the problem of death is still there. Because this sign is only a sign. And it was pointing to a greater reality that Jesus talked about in verse 25. Remember verse 25. This sign was pointing to Jesus' own resurrection. When Jesus walked out of the tomb, he wasn't just showing us a sign. Jesus wasn't just temporarily resuscitated. He was raised to live forever because he was defeating death once and for all. And that is what Jesus promises to anyone who believes in him. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us Jesus is the first fruits of many who will be raised like him. That is the Christian hope. And nothing compares to that. Look at what Jesus said in verse 25 again. Go back to verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. A wise man once said to me, you can judge the value of a worldview or a philosophy by what it offers at the graveside. And it's so true. Only Jesus, only Jesus offers hope after death. So I want to say to you today, if you do not trust in Jesus, if you don't follow him, I want to say believe in him today. Find life, find hope. And a hope that our world just cannot offer. You cannot find it anywhere else. We'd love to help you come to know Jesus. We'd love to help you find life. Put on your feedback slip that you'd like to know more. Come and talk to me afterwards. But Jesus is the only one who offers true life. But for most of us here, we know the hope of Christ. We have found life. We live with the certain hope of the resurrection. I pray that you know that wonderful hope. But then to us, I want to say this. 
Knowing the hope of the resurrection changes everything. The, the, the Christian person, more than anything else, should be marked out as a person who lives with the hope of the resurrection. See, it's the resurrection that makes us different to other people. It's the fact that we know that we have eternal life that liberates us now in this life to live radical lives for Jesus. As Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see, it's because of the resurrection that Christians throughout history have been willing to die rather than give up their faith. It's why on a much smaller scale, Christians can say, I don't care what other people in this world think of me. I have the hope of eternity. I have eternal life. At the most basic level, this is why Christians don't live for this world. The hope of the resurrection is why we want to store up treasures in heaven, not here on earth. The hope of, of the resurrection is why we as Christians devote ourselves to the service of Jesus in this life, rather than building up our own security and building up our own kingdom. This is why Christians prioritise Jesus now, because we know we have the hope of eternity because of the resurrection. The resurrection liberates you to live for what really matters now, eternal life with our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great sign. We thank you that Jesus truly is the Son of God and that he came to give life. But we thank you even more for what this sign was pointing to, the hope of the resurrection. We thank you that Jesus has defeated death once and for all. And that he is just the first fruits. Now we have that hope. That if we are alive when he returns, we will be raised to glory with him. If we are dead, we'll be raised to glory with him. And so, Father, we pray that that might mark us out as different to our world. That we will live as people with the hope of the resurrection. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.